metaphor for us? It's not so much a metaphor as a fractal representation of the way we perceive the world. Okay. Um, it's because there's a lot of research on the way people perceive music. And music is a really intense sensory experience. It's a really intense affective experience. So watching the way your brain functions when it perceives music tells us a lot of ways about the way we experience perceiving everything else in the world. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So there's been a lot of research about what our brains do when we hear music. And one of those things is about developing expectations. Music does not exist as a physical object, so you can't see it or touch it. The only sense through which we can access it is our hearing. So the only way we can appreciate music at all is the fact that we have the capacity not only to pay attention to what's going on now, but we can remember what happened in the past, which is a, which is a very useful skill that not all animals have, although it is pretty common for mammals. Paying attention to what's happening now, remembering what's happened in the past, and from that being able to build an expectation of what will happen in the future. And a lot of our pleasure from listening to music comes from the fulfillment of those expectations. Make sense? So if I go, shave and a haircut. Yeah. Everybody, everybody has a sense of suspension. Yeah, exactly. Everyone thought two bits. Exactly. Yeah. And the way that that happens in our brains. Unless they're British, in which case they thought five bob. Or <laughs> exactly. But somebody's, you know, maybe a more universal one. And the one that, uh, when I taught about this in my music psychology class, I used a video from the Ted Ed series. That's like an animated version. And the, the example they used was mana mana. Do, 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 do. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. But like you just, you have to. It was deeply it. satisfying. It's right. True. Exactly. Exactly. So the way we think probably that happens just biologically, how it happens in your brain is through, it begins with a part of your brain called the basal ganglia. Now you probably know more about the anatomy of the brain than I do. So would you like to tell the lovely people about the location of the basal ganglia? It's at the base. That's it's at the base, exactly. Yeah. It's deep in the midbrain. It says the, so right in the knit label. Exactly. So what does that say evolutionarily about where that sits in our heritage? It's a OG brain. It's OG brain, exactly. It's way back in the day. Even when we didn't have the capacity for language, we had basal ganglia. Basal ganglia are interacts with the cerebellum and the temporal lobes, and maybe with the amygdala, I don't know, we're still working on this research, but we know that it does a bunch of different things, or they, the multiple basal ganglia, probably are cooperating with the cerebellum to help us with striking accuracy and balance and initiating involuntary motion. But definitely newer research, like from the past 20, 30 years, as opposed to the original research, shows that it's definitely involved in learning, especially creating memories and recognizing patterns so that we can predict what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. And this kind of learning happens way below the level of conscious awareness. So when I teach my Music 101 class, my students can all tell, here's the end of the verse, what comes next, the chorus, in a song they've never heard before. And they couldn't tell you how they knew or what it was about it that made them understand that that's definitely what happens next is that they've been steeped in this musical culture their whole lives and deep down in their subconscious they have learned what the rhythms are they've learned what the pattern is and they can apply it to just about any kind of music they hear make sense yeah can you give us an example well the mana mana okay that's an example of like well, a but i know that because i know that specific song that's not an example right. of like something i don't know that, that's true that's true I'd have to like play you some music that you've never heard before. And I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can make that specific like right now. Okay. I didn't prepare to do that. So I haven't got anything ready. Okay. But like, so if a person just, if you know even a little bit of the solfege thing and somebody goes, sol la ti. So. Yeah. Actually, there's a fantastic video of Bobby McFerrin demonstrating this to a large audience of non-musicians where he jumps up and down and sings doot 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 and then he jumps like next to himself and goes doot 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 and he jumps back and forth doot 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 and then he takes one more jump in the next direction and the whole audience goes doot 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 they know exactly what note comes next <laughs> not because they know their scales just because humanity is 
built in with this capacity to learn things deep down in their subconscious to be able to cause them to predict what comes next. So on those days when you walk outside and go, hmm, looks like rain or feels like rain or it feels like snow or, oh, it finally feels like spring. Like three-year-olds don't do that. They haven't existed in the world long enough for all those subconscious cues about seasons and weather to have turned into the capacity to predict a large-scale weather event. Does that make sense? The, the day in Massachusetts in 2011 when the sky was green yeah, and all the other New Englanders were like, what the fuck? The sky is green. And I was like, that's tornado weather. Yeah. Because I spent seven years in Indiana. And yeah. Green sky, tornado. Yeah. And it, there's much more to it than the color of the sky. There are lots of cues that you Yeah, probably... there was like a feeling in the air and a pressure that I could not have named. Exactly, exactly. But your body knows and your body learns that stuff. And actually, weather prediction is one of the ways that they've tested this. One of the most basic studies was just they show three pictures on a computer screen and whoever's taking the test just guesses. Does this predict sunny weather or cloudy weather? And they feel like they're guessing. It seems like these clues are not related, but the longer they take the test, they don't, they're not even aware that they're learning how to pick up on the patterns and the cues to predict what the computer says is sunny or cloudy, but they do. They learn it without knowing it because it happens way below the level of conscious awareness, deep, deep, deep in the midbrain. That is so interesting. Yeah. Because, so for example, your vision system is comprised of your eyeballs, the hardware of vision, and your brain, many, many areas of visual cortex yep. that process visual information. And it's possible to get brain damage such that your eyes are still fully functional. Your eyes are receiving complete input, but you are blind. You, if someone asks you, grab the coffee cup, and you're like, what coffee cup? Because you are blind, you cannot see anything. Because even though the information is coming in, your brain is not processing it so that you can see it. And yet, if the researcher is like, okay, just, it's called blind sight. Just take a random guess, reach out and grab where you would guess a coffee mug might be. Right. They do, because they can see the coffee mug, even though they cannot see the coffee mug. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. They're not aware that they see it, but deep in their brain, their yeah. brain Yeah, in fact, they're it. totally sure they don't see it. Yeah, yeah. But there's a part of them that knows. Yeah. All the time, I, I teach my students, you know, find the steady beat. Find the steady beat. And they're going, I'm like, okay, what meter is this in? Just tap for me the rhythm. And they're really hesitant and their fingers are like hovering over the top of their desk, but they're nodding their heads in time and they're not even aware. Well, like, like you've got it. You can hear it. Your head knows, your neck knows where the beat is. Now just pay attention. So the way we develop expectancies um, happens way below the level of conscious awareness. And I know this because I've studied how music is perceived in the brain. Right. So we're going to talk about how to deal with uncertainty. I think what this describes is a solution to tolerating uncertainty, because what it shows is a path forward. It explains why it's so irritating oh, yes. to wait oh, it's so for irritating. Yes. the thing. Yeah. And so I feel like the solution is going to be meet other expectancies, build in expectancies and meet them, feel the satisfaction of meeting those expectancies as a palliative for the distress of the uncertainty and unmet expectancies of living in social distancing. Because our brains don't know the difference between disease and dessert. They really, we perceive all sensory experiences in basically through the same processes. So if we listen to music, for example, that fulfills our expectations and gives us that sense of having, oh, completed a thing, that's a satisfying experience that can take the place of having a satisfying experience of knowing what's gonna happen next in terms of when is our lockdown gonna end? Yeah, so this is one of the main questions that gets asked at like every press conference for every governor and the president and everyone everywhere and every scientist and every funder of, of the research get asked the yeah. question. When's the lockdown gonna end? What are, the, what are, the, what are yeah. the criteria for when we're gonna know when the lockdown's ending? How can we count down to this? What do we look for in the process? Yeah. We don't even need to know the end date. We need to know like some like stepping stones. Show me at least where the stepping stones are. Yeah, and unfortunately the answer is something like we need to build infrastructure yeah. for generating the reagents for the various tests. Right, which is- When we get the reagents and the other hardware, then we can implement a testing infrastructure, then we can test widely, and then we can begin phase one 
of right. reopening. So the is the go- not satisfying. The next goal is so far from the final goal. Yeah. It's really, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, the next goal isn't even phase one. Yeah, it's listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, at least the first movement, is one of, it's famous for its repetition of that one motive. I bet even you know what that motive is, Beethoven's Fifth. Is it da-da-da-da? Exactly, Beethoven's Fifth, Beethoven's Fifth. Beethoven's fifth, Beethoven's fifth, Beethoven's fifth, Beethoven's fifth, Beethoven's fifth, Beethoven's fifth, over and over again. That Beethoven's little, fifth. Exactly. Beethoven's fifth. See, Beethoven's fifth. Fifth symphony. Oh, I can't laugh so hard. It hurts my back. Sorry. But yeah, no, it's, it's these, so it's like listening to those first three notes. Beethoven's fifth. Okay. Well, that didn't mean anything. I mean, you get to the end of this, the movement and it feels so satisfying because you went through that whole big journey of using that small piece of information to develop and to go so far and to come back to where you started. It feels fantastic. But those first four notes don't mean anything. And that's where we are now. We're in those first four notes. And it's like, well, that doesn't even mean anything. It doesn't even count for anything. We're not going anywhere. Oh, but we are. We are going someplace. But it's going to, oh, it's going to be a while. Yeah. Like, we don't even know what the tune is yet. Yeah. Do we know what the tune is, metaphorically speaking? I think this is not a tuneful situation. I think this is a motivic situation. So Beethoven- have to clarify that metaphor. Yeah. Beethoven's fifth have, has a motive. It's just four notes, right? Just those four notes. Bomp, yeah. bomp, bomp, bomp. In that particular rhythm, those two particular pitches. That's it. That's not a melody. It's a motive. A melody is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's long. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And maybe you use that same melody in different ways and twist it and turn it and make other things happen in a large-scale work. But one of the things that's so genius about Beethoven and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is that it takes those four dopey, easy, dumb notes and turns it into something really magnificent. It, you build on this tiny little fragment. So I think what we're, what we're in an experience now is a motivic situation where we've got tiny little fragments. They're gonna turn into something really impressive, but um, we're never gonna get a whole melody where we see some kind of bigger picture, where we feel the satisfaction of a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it's kind of like a fugue where we'll never hear the overlap of the different lines? It's even worse than that. Oh, no. At least in a fugue, a fugue has a melody that you can sing along with. Yes. Fox. Yes, I know. You know. How did you know? I use it as a metaphor in my sexuality class. Oh, good for you. As I get toward the end of the class and the concepts get more and more complex yeah. and uh, students get more and more frustrated yeah, 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 with yeah. the ways what they're learning does not conform with what they already knew, mm-hmm. there's a class about three quarters of the way through the semester when I begin with the little fugue and with the geographical fugue. Mm-hmm. Trinidad and the and Lake of Mississippi and the town Honolulu and the Lake, Lake of Peacock. The public capital is not in Canada, rather in Mexico, Mexico, Mexico. Right. And I ask them to listen to all the lines at the same time. I actually give them a visual representation of it. So with one, it's singers. There's one singer per line with a geographical fugue. And with Box Little Fugue, it's different colored lines moving across the screen. Yeah. So they can see the lines in front of them. And I ask them to listen to each of the lines, all of them at the same time, the whole time. Yeah, no. Because it's an exercise in how to listen complexly to different ideas, not just to each individual line, but to the way each of the lines relates to the others. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. Most of them make it about 10 seconds into the addition of the second line. Yeah. Before they like just zone out. That's a skill that's explicitly taught to musicians, usually at the graduate level. They start ear training one pitch at a time, one rhythmic line at a time, going into like very predictable harmonic, like chords where you hear the whole chord at the same time. That's pretty much where you get in undergraduate ear training. In master's ear training, especially for conductors, there is explicit training in how to listen to multiple things all at the same time and hear them separately and together simultaneously. This, by the way, is a function of the temporal lobe, which is not only where all sound is perceived, but where sound is broken down into its component parts. And where our brains learn to, with training, hear 
discern the differences between different aspects of the sound. We learn to separate timbre from pitch and different pitches from different octaves and uh, volume differences and interruptions in sound articulations. Yeah, that's, um, that's a learned skill. And I don't need students actually to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. I need them to feel how hard it is and how yes. much work it requires. Yeah. Because yeah. so that way, when they start to get grumpy with me for talking about biology in the context of beauty, mm -hmm. I can be like, okay, so let's go back to the fugue. Listen to multiple ideas that exist in parallel yeah. and how they relate to each other. It's hard. Do it anyway. Yeah, it's hard. The, the reason it's hard is because this. Remember how hard that was? Yeah. That's why this feels hard. That's exactly what's going on now is there's so many complex pieces. Unfortunately, uh, the more you get to know music and you get trained on how to do this, you can learn how to do it. And then you learn about how fugues work in general. And then you can extrapolate and apply this knowledge to all fugues. We are in a situation now where we're not following any form or structure that we've known before. So we can't even apply what we've learned from the past to this. Also, I think that a fugue has a singable tune, which our temporal lobes love, because the temporal lobe is one of the things that cooperates with the basal ganglia in order to learn and predict patterns. Which and is why this is a worse than a fugue. The current situation is exactly. more about motif. It's, yeah, motive, motive. is actually, motive. yeah. Motif and motive are slightly different. They're also used interchangeably by different schools of thought, so... Yeah. You're talking about motive, though, yeah. which don't is argue with tune. Me, it's not a melody. It's you're just... musicologists, I know. Don't argue with me. It's fine. I'm just going to use this version <laughs> of, it's just of the vocabulary. An just an example. <laughs> no angry emails from a musicologist <laughs> being like, dear Amelia, you can go fuck yourself with motive motif. Yeah. <laughs> I know there are different schools of thought on this. This is the way I, I use the vocabulary because this is how I learned it, and it's, it's fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. It was, it's right now, it's, we're using it as an analogy for exactly. why this feels so difficult for so many people, why we are longing for an answer to the question of when will this be over. Yeah. So and motif, for example, which is the motif that represents the character of Rey in the Star Wars movies. So okay. you can see how that's, there's more to that than a motive, like bum, 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 bum. I've seen those movies a fair amount and I never noticed that. You never noticed that. I just don't notice. The first time I saw Ray on screen, I was like, what's her motive? What's her motive? What's her motive? Not like, what's her motivation? But like, I want to hear. Because we all know the Star Wars motives, motifs. Yeah. Dun, 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 Technically, dun, dun, they come from the tradition of light motif, which is the Wagnerian approach to opera, where a character or an idea or a force has a little melody or a fragment of a melody. That's what I mean by motif. Like you just sang the the dark side one or the empire one, right? Yeah. And as opposed to ba 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 da that one. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so nothing we compares to sex with a wookie. Excellent noki hairballs aside. <laughs> anyway, so the first time I saw the first, the most recent, it was um, which one is it? Last Jedi, Rise of Skywalker. Ra no, no. The first one with Ray in it. I can't even remember now. I think it's Last Jedi. I don't know. It doesn't matter. No, Last Je Jedi is the one in the middle. It doesn't matter. The first time I saw the first one with Ray in it, I was like, I wanted to know, what is John Williams going to do with a, a girl, a woman character who's also like an action hero? Like, how is he going to portray her? And it's it's fucking perfect. It's fucking perfect. Do, 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 do. It's a little sneaky. It's a little playful. And it's really like dancing on its toes and ready to fucking go. Like it's, it's perfect. Yeah. Anyway, that's a motif. <laughs> a motif has more to glom onto, more to remember, more to sing along to, more character to tell us what's going on. A motive, like the Beethoven's Fifth, just has four notes and they're nothing but potential. There is nothing inherently understandable about Bum, 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 bum. There's not enough to that for us to understand, oh, I see where he's going there. It's not until we see where he goes with it that we're like, holy crap, he did so much with so little. That was amazing. And I think that's where we're at. Yeah. So all we have right now in terms of the quarantine and social distancing is uh, bum, 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 with no previous exposure to anything that comes next. Exactly. We're sitting here in the audience. Going bum, 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 bum. Going, really, Beethoven? You're supposed to be like fancy and special and you gave us four goddamn notes. Even doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo has a lot more information in it. Yes, it does. Then 
Bum, 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 bum. Exactly. Okay, now what? What? What comes next? Finish. What? Yeah, and the thing is, he could have gone anywhere. You could go anywhere. Where he went was amazing and really interesting and really memorable, but it could have been anything. And we're kind of in the can be anything place now. We're so early in this with so little to guess what's going to happen in the future. And it's not like a fun kind of suspense because like people, millions of people have lost their jobs and we right. can't hang out with our friends and grandparents can't hug their grandchildren. Yeah. When, when we study how people perceive music, we know that people do not like too much repetition. So we do enjoy little surprises, kind of like those juicy moments where you don't know what to expect or you do know what to expect and it does something else instead. That's like kind of enjoyable, but we don't like much of that. A little too much unpredictability makes us much less fond of that music. We love music that is really predictable. Do you want to hear about a research study about repetition in music? Sure. Sure. Okay. So there's this study where um, they take contemporary music, modern-ish music that is on purpose composed so that it doesn't have any repetition. Up till the late 19th century, all music rules pointed to how much repetition can you have? How can you, what is the way we can most satisfyingly fulfill the expectations that we can resolve this dissonance in a way that feels really good, that feels really satisfying. That was the rules up through the 19th century. And then in the late 19th century, people were like, hmm, I'm sick of those rules. I think everything should be like natural and free flowing and unpredictable. And people started to not like classical music as much anymore because it was no longer serving that role of like giving them what they want and what they want to predict. So music from the middle of the 19th century, some of it. And then lots of music in the 20th century is composed on purpose to violate expectations. And how do people feel about 20th century music that does that? Oh, they fucking hate it. Yeah, yeah, people fucking hate it. It's pretentious. You can go fuck yourself. Exactly. That's what Like, that's not about. music. You're just making fun no noises. Yeah, so they did a study where they compared some of I say this as, like, the least musical person in our family. Yeah. Oh, yeah that music yeah. is just like, well, I mean, you're being artsy-fartsy. You can jack off in a corner and that's fine. But that's not music. I mean, it is music, but I can't dance to it. I give it a four out of ten. Yeah, you are not alone in that. That's a that's a deeply human response. Non-musician. Yeah. So what they did in the study, they played people music that's intentionally not repetitive. So this could even include famous art pieces like Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn by Claude Debussy. You've probably heard of that. It's pretty famous. But I think I like that. Yes, it's lovely. It has a little bit of repetition, but it's it's what they call through composed whereas most structural large-scale pieces have like a beginning and a middle and an end, and at the end, they kind of go back to the same thing that happened in the, in the beginning. Prelude to the Afternoon of Fawn does not do that. It's pretty in lots of other ways, but it's not predictable in terms of its form. Okay. Sense? So they played that or other more modern works that like, like that are through composed. They don't have any like, and now we end where we begin. There's no verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, chorus, none of that predictable form. So then they also played edited versions of those same pieces where they just digitally spliced and pasted in repetitions where the composer hadn't intended them. Make okay. sense? So um, obviously you would not be surprised to learn that people enjoyed the repetitive ones more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it actually goes further than that. Not only did they enjoy the edited versions more, they also said they predicted or they believed that the repetitive ones were more likely to have been composed by a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like no human being would write a piece of music that doesn't repeat. Repetition right. and predictability. Only a computer would be dumb enough to compose. Right. We see humanity in predictability. We see ourselves and what we want to believe is in other people. Is this why Stephen Sondheim says never introduce a new tune in act two? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. Like his music is hard enough. Oh, oh yes. My, like, um, if you can make it through act one, you get the reward of having it all come again in act two. Yeah, my uh, music history professor in undergrad in my fourth semester of um, music history was talking about some rules of composition for 20th century composers. And he himself said, I only know one thing about composition. And it's if it works once, do it again. So if we are designing public policy or even just health communication yes. uh, around the pandemic, mm -hmm. 
we start building cognitive yes. structures for people to understand. Repetition and consistency and predictable patterns. So that when the infrastructure for making the reagents appears, that's going back to a motive. When yes. the infrastructure for conducting the tests appears, that's building on the motive that was already established. When the testing goes out, when the tracing starts to happen, and you get that phone call or that text saying uh, you were in contact with someone who was diagnosed with COVID, you should come talk to us. That's not random out of the blue, what the fuck? That's, yes. oh, I already heard six times that the contact and trace program is in place. You're well prepared and it's not a surprise. So you may have heard that the- In fact, it feels satisfying. It feels like forward movement. Yes, like, oh, we ended up where I knew we would. Yeah. Yeah. It means we're going somewhere. Yes, yes. This is the next step that happens. And I can kind of tell what's going to come next built on the pattern that I've seen in the past. I think that's why Gavin Newsom, the, the um, California governor, yeah. has started saying things like, here's what normal's going to look like. It's going like, to look yeah. like half as many tables in a restaurant. It's going to yeah. look like your server's wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. It's going to look like those spacing lines at the grocery mm-hmm. store. That's going to be what normal looks like for a yeah. while. That's ba-ba-ba-bum. Yeah, and people so don't like it. Get, people so that don't like it. People don't like it. But when we get about 10 minutes into this movement, people are going to be like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. I can't so believe how, how far we've gone with that small little thing. They're going to feel really differently about this whole mask thing. Yes. Well, also, I mean, should we talk about the mere exposure effect? Have we already kind of... We have suggested? not talked about mere exposure. Go ahead. Mere exposure effect is the well-understood fact that people prefer things that they already know about. They prefer things they've heard before. They, they prefer bodies that are like the bodies they've seen the most. They prefer sounds that are like the sounds to which they've been exposed the most. They just prefer them because they've heard them more. Like the first time you hear a song on the radio, you're like, hmm. And then you hear it 22 times and you're like, sing it along in the grocery store. Can't help it. Exactly. You can't even stop yourself. Katy Perry. Uh, yeah. Give me a roar. I don't like that song, but I can't not sing it. Yeah. And there is a limit to exposure and repetition like universally in all my classes i ask my classes is there a song that you've heard so much that you can't stand it anymore a hundred percent of them say happy by pharrell Mm -hmm. so do you have feelings about the song happy by pharrell no did you listen to a lot of radio about eight years ago when it was super famous I uh, made up a dance that I taught to the student leaders on campus during their training Yeah. as a like wellness break. Yeah. And they loved it. Okay. Great. That's fantastic. It, that's a song that has all the capacity to be really enjoyable and really terrific and fun. But the fact that it has so much repetition built into the song that when you repeat the whole song, whole cloth, um, it becomes overwhelmingly repetitive and we develop a hatred for it. Like, ugh, I know, I'm sick of it. I've heard it a million times. Done. Yeah. But that saturation level is, we have um, a high saturation rate for repetition. So it takes the repetition of happy, like that is so repetitive that it can eventually burn out a person's system. It's like if you press a vibrator really hard to, you know, your neck, your neck is sore. And at first the vibration feels really, really good. But like the longer you hold it there, it just keeps the same kind of stimulation in exactly the same spot. Eventually your nerve endings just go numb and you're like, oh, it's irritating. Yeah. Stop. And happy is a relatively sophisticated, complex song, not relative to art music, but relative to like children's music. So parents have always felt really tortured by like the baby shark song. Yeah. Because it that song itself is already so re- repetitive. And then the song itself gets repeated by their children over and over and over and over and over. Um, there's stories that they use the the Barney theme song as as a source of torture as a means of torture in the I don't know when but it was in the early 2000s I don't remember the Barney theme song um we should probably I not love you oh god you yeah lo- that one yeah yeah they played it over and over again with the intention of torturing people with it it's actually just this old man yeah you're right I'd never thought of that before yeah it's disguised from this old man because one of the more annoying things about that song is that it's sung in the Barney voice which is a timbre that irritates adults. And the instrumentation is yes, really right. saccharine. Yes. Yeah. So it's got a lot going for it in terms of unpleasantness to an adult brain, 
but all that stuff is stuff that kids' brains really love. Like it's food that's too sweet for adults, but kids are like, give me more. Yeah. So mere exposure effect. We tend to like things that are repetitive at first. And our, our tolerance for repetition is limited, but the limit is very high. So we don't like things that are unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. We begin to like them the second time we're exposed to it because it's mm -hmm. more familiar. Yeah. And many, many, many times after our, our preference just we increases. No, it takes so long to get sick of it, though. It takes a lot to yes. get sick of it. It takes yeah. happy to get sick of it. Yes. Okay. So we are not anywhere close to that in terms of pandemic. No, we're still at bum, 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 bum. Yeah, and everybody's like, well, fuck this concert. Yeah. And it's taking weeks to get to the next goddamn phrase. Like, we're all just sitting here. Everything is still the same. We're watching the numbers go up. It's the same song of, like, 500 people died today, 500 people died today, 500 people died today. Mm -hmm. And we're all like, we did that already. We're done. Let, let's move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. When can we move on to the next thing? Mm -hmm. And people don't just want to know when can we move on to the next thing. They want to know when it's going to be over. Right. I don't like this right now. Therefore, tell me when it's going to end. And there is no way to know that. That's so no wonder there's so much unrest of like you know, a very small proportion of the population is a bunch of jerkwads who are now protesting actively. Yeah. Because they're the people with the really low tolerance of waiting for the next phrase. Yeah. Song. Yeah. Yeah. Tolerance and patience with an ability to be around music, for example, that is not repetitive at all, is a learned skill. So a lot of people who enjoy that kind of like modernist music that doesn't follow any of the rules that we're all been immersed in our whole lives, that kind of avant-garde music, the people who enjoy it are mostly like me, where our training teaches us what to listen for besides those old patterns. We've learned a new thing to listen to that's not about patterns. We learn to appreciate it intellectually, intellectually. <laughs> and for me, like I don't get the same visceral enjoyment out of that music as I do out of music that does follow those old rules. Some people tell me that they just love it and it really carries them away on a journey of ecstasy. Or, and I, I don't get that. And I don't know many people who do. Um, our appreciation of it is intellectual. We can sit back and observe and go, oh yeah, I see what you did there. But it's, it's a very rare bird who's actually going to enjoy having no expectations met, having no patterns established. Okay. But at least you can appreciate it intellectually and like, okay, I'm following along. I'm going to see where you're going to go here. Right. I'm not going to expect to see what I've seen before. I'm going to listen and keep my ears open and find out what you do. For someone like me who understands that that knowledge exists, but does not have that knowledge, I can be like, I see what you're doing there vaguely. And I know it's not for me, but do you? It's yeah. not for me. Yeah. Which and is a kind of tolerance that, uh, yeah, it's fine. That's enough. Yeah. But it is a learned skill. When it comes to what human beings are built to do, we are built to perceive patterns, to predict right. the future based on what's going on now and what we remember from the past. And because there is a precedent, actually. people keep using the word unprecedented to yes. describe the pandemic. Yes. We are currently building the precedent. Yes, there is no memory to predict anything. And that is a very uncomfortable cognitive place to be. And it's where we all live right now. That's where we all live right now. And it's now. our whole lives and it's costing us a lot. Yeah, it's not only an intellectual discomfort because of, you know, I'm listening to music that's not familiar. It's, it's costing us a lot. We all have to give up a lot of our normal behaviors to change the way we do things day to day, the way we interact with other people. It's a, it's a very high cost. It's a lot of physical discomfort and inconvenience added and in fact, into- you talked to someone who's sort of doing the Zoom rounds and they said that you're basically the only person who isn't going nuts. Oh yeah. Hi, Allegra. She listens to the podcast. So tell us more about that. Um, we, had, we had dinner on Zoom. I put my phone on a tripod in the living room and Maylin and I sat on the couch and had dinner with her and we talked and had like a dinner conversation and it was really nice. She's like, how y'all doing? And we were like, yeah, we're, we're doing good. It's fine. And she said, well, I've done a bunch of these and you are the only ones I've talked to who seem to be remotely okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Even she's a pretty intense introvert. And she's not loving it. 
she also lives alone. She has two cats. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to talk lot. about Allegra. Alone is a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but like, we talk, yeah. we've talked a couple of different times about like how many people in America live alone and how yes. that's a really different experience from yes. being stuck with your family. Like that can get irritating, but it feeds something really fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. Like I worry about the people who live alone. Like yeah. there's all these podcasts being made by young journalists and so yeah. many of them live in New York alone. alone. Yeah. And they live in these tiny apartments that are designed to be spaces you don't spend a lot of time in. Yes. They're designed to be where you go home to eat and sleep and then you go out and spend your life in the world. Yeah. That's why people can tolerate living in those tiny spaces. Yeah. So nightmare. Yeah. Life is not designed to be lived like that for most So for a lot of people who are in situations like that, where it, like their whole world was designed to be out in the world. Mm -hmm. it's They're finding bum, 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 bum of the pandemic, which has, it's been weeks that we've just heard that over and over and over again. And then there's this crazy dude who comes on TV for two <sighs> hours every day Yeah, and lies about it. Yeah. Is there a musical metaphor for that? Um, that's when the phone rings by someone in the audience. Like an interruption <laughs> is just annoying. Like, and and then they like, pick up the phone and have a conversation and they start saying racist fucking shit. asshole. How could you not even take anyone else in consideration? You're only thinking about you right now. And the thing that Mother. they're saying on the phone is racist stuff and lies and a yeah. total inability to understand science. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's a really good metaphor. <laughs> like, I might not like this song, but I came to this concert. Yeah, I paid money to be here. Okay, so back to the idea that people are suffering like from the logistical differences and the changes in the actual discomfort from the changes in their lives. Yeah. But what's underlying that is a cognitive discomfort from the fact that our brains aren't doing, aren't capable of doing the thing that they want to do. They're trying to see a pattern, to establish repetition, to predict what's going to come next. And there just is no way to do that. And some of the, that's, that's what is a source of discomfort that's below the level of conscious awareness, but it colors everything we feel all day. So assuming there are at least some people who are listening to this and feeling like, yes, that is the dissatisfaction and the impatience and the discomfort that I am feeling mm -hmm. is with like my pattern recognition system is like, where is the pattern? Yeah. Tell me when this is going to be over. Tell me what comes next. What is the solution? Given that there is no precedent, that there is no pattern that exists already in our brains. We have never been exposed to this before, so mere exposure is not working for us. What do people do? Well, I've never had to teach that as a life skill, but I have had to teach this to my music students to teach them to tolerate music that does well, not follow the rules. Well, this whole thing is just a metaphor anyway, yeah. so. Yeah, so. How to what? tolerate music that's not tolerable? Well, that's You're not gonna be forced to listen to this 14 minute Philip Glass. I love like Philip Glass. Fancy, whatever. First of all, Philip Glass is extremely predictable. If it's nothing yeah, else, that's true. it's predictable. That's but anyway. basically the only like contemporary modernist composer name I know. Okay. Anyway, let's go I'm back to teach people to tolerate music they cannot tolerate. With my students in my music classes, I use the mere exposure effect and I have them listen to music they're not comfortable with. And I ask them to acknowledge their discomfort their negative judgment initially, they're gonna feel like, I don't like that. And our first physical response to a thing we don't like is to push it away in some way, either to turn our head away or to turn the volume down or to put our head down or close our eyes or somehow reduce our sensory input so that we don't have to take in as much of it because we're rejecting it. Does that make sense? No, say it again, what? People's first response when they hear music they don't like yeah. is their- Eh, quit it. Yeah, they tend to reject it in in a lot of different ways. There's some physical responses like closing their eyes or turning their head or just physically they hold out their hand or they turn down the knob or they turn their attention to something else. Like they respond in a behavioral way. And what I ask them to do is to notice that sensation, that desire to push it away and instead to turn toward that sensation of no and be like, hello, no, I see you, no. I'm going to keep listening anyway. Okay. So that's that's mindfulness, that's attention without judgment. And then they keep listening. And then I would have trained them and given them preparation of what to listen for. So here's a piece of music that has very little repetition in it, but here's what the composer had in mind. Can you hear this? 
Like this is the prelude to the afternoon of a fawn. It doesn't have any big structural repetitions, but it sets the mood and, and gives us the feeling of what it's like to be a fawn in the afternoon, wandering through the forest in a sweet and gentle, dusky, shady, tree-filled so landscape. Suggest a meaning. If there is a meaning you give in mind. a framework and a structure, which in the case of Afternoon of a Fawn is like, imagine you're a fawn in the afternoon and this is what your day is like. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes the music is not intended to tell a story. The music is just intended to make you uncomfortable. Sometimes that legit is just the, the point for a composer. If they're, you know, whether that's a- Pretentious assholes. A pretentious an asshole, or if it's like a legitimate artistic, ex I don't know, like it's, you can judge that or evaluate that. Um, based on your own criteria. Remember, but... my first year in grad school, I attended a performance of Voxek. Oh, man, you should not have done that. <laughs> I did, though. I had a student in my residence hall who yeah. was performing in it. He was a music yeah. director. Yeah. It was so uncomfortable it's, the whole time. so uncomfortable. No, and, and yeah, that whole school of thought of composers, yeah, they wanted to break all the rules and violate all the they thought that those like reliance on scales and harmonies that we understood that that was kind of infantile uh -huh. and, and that like fully developed, sophisticated, mature humans should not be reliant on patterns and scales. Yeah. That was a, that was a short lived movement in the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. And even composers who did start using the techniques that they did use them in a larger context that was like, we get that audiences don't like that and we're going to sustain classical music as an industry. We need butts in seats. In order to get butts in seats, music has to be appealing to audiences. Yeah. You're not going to have a music industry if your intention is to make people uncomfortable. People don't like being uncomfortable. Yeah. So if, for example, the music is intended to make someone feel uncomfortable, I let them know, look, this composer is trying to make you feel uncomfortable. They think that this is going to be a valuable experience for you. So see if you can turn toward the discomfort that the music makes you feel and see any value in it. Do you agree or disagree? You don't have to agree, but, but you have to spend a minute turning toward it without judgment. Okay. So first, neutral noticing that you are uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Second, considering the musical intention mm -hmm. of the composer, which might be, you know, the afternoon of a fawn or to make you uncomfortable. It might be Vatsik, yeah. Okay. Vatsik is the opera you just said you went to see, yeah. which was oh, uncomfortable. God. Yeah. It was just sad and awful. Yeah. And it's not just the story, it's the music itself. It was really well performed. Yeah. And it was yeah. awful. Yeah, really well performed, but awful. Yeah. You know, it's the Indiana University School of Music performance. Yeah. That's They're a graduate legit, students. That's a high quality performance, but is the work itself it just made me feel satisfying? No, I, yet. Had, I went and had like steak and shake afterward. I had to. <laughs> Yeah, an antidote. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that might be part of our solution is step one, notice it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Step two, impose an intention on the experience. Like, what are they trying to have me experience right now? Mm -hmm. um, now it's different with music because there was a composer who had And there an is an intention, yeah. In this yeah. case, it, there isn't an intention, really. You just need to notice your discomfort and be like, yep, discomfort, there you I, are. I think with, with, for example, Trump's press conferences, there is an intention and it is to pick a fight. He needs the fight. He needs enemies and to disagree. He has no interest in solutions. He has no interest in collaboration. He has no interest in solving problems. He's just trying to like create them versus me dynamic. Yeah. So I recommend just not paying attention to exactly those. like if you watch it and you like notice that that's the intention that's happening right there you can be like and that's not for me the way i do with philip glass or Foxek. yeah it's just not for me and so i don't watch them you know it is for me andrew that's cuomo. greek oh, andrew cuomo yeah, yeah 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 like his press conferences he's not looking for a fight nope he's looking for help yeah i actually um an assignment that I give this the final project for my music one on one class. I ask my students to choose a popular music thing and a classical music thing and a non music thing and explain to me each of those three things separately and then explain to me how they are connected. So we find this like universal human connection from classical music to popular music into like real life. That's the goal of this assignment. 
and I usually post a couple of examples so they can see how it works. Like the first one I ever did for them was Lizzo, uh, Gounod, and selfies, where I talk about Lizzo's, uh, excuse me while I feel myself, excuse me while I feel, my, yeah, that one, um, where she's singing like she feels so great about herself. And then there's an aria called the Jewel Aria from Faust, where Marguerite sings like, I look so amazing. I, I can't believe how great I look. Look at me, I'm gorgeous, right? So I analyze them both musically and compare them. And then I talk about how selfies, you know, have two functions. They're to express how the person feels and also to make the person who's receiving the selfie feel good also. Good for you. I'm, I'm so glad you sent me that. And I'm so glad that you feel good. Like and I that, feel pretty. Right, exactly. So these two songs accomplish that, those same tasks. They both express how good the person feels through some united uh, musical elements. And they also achieve the second goal of selfies, which is to make the audience or the consumer feel good too. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. So it's just like three-part thing. So the one I posted this week actually was an example one was um, Randy. We've talked about Randy Rainbow before. It was Randy Rainbow's song about um, Andy, Andy yes. from, from Greece, that song. And then there's an aria from a Bach cantata where uh, the cantata itself is called There is Nothing Healthy in My Body. And there's a bass aria where he sings, there's nothing that can heal me but the balm of Gilead. Only you, Jesus, know the... <laughs> Of the soul. That is the same thing. So I did an analysis of both these two songs and then like talked about what it what it means as a human being to seek solace in times of illness or pandemic and how these two songs have, they actually have a lot structurally in common that are also related to what it is like to have, like have this search for someone who can, who can give you hope in a time of despair. Also, um, like half of my students are doing things that are related to death and disease. Jeez. Yeah way more than you i mean there's always some war and turmoil but like it's it's way more than normal a third thing that can go with andy and there is nothing healthy in my body mm -hmm. is rupert doubler rupert doubler is the certified deaf interpreter for the governor oh, of Massachusetts. yeah yeah, yeah. a lot of people in the deaf and hard of hearing community just consider him like a steadying presence they're like standing six feet socially distant from the governor. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like got this really like calming presence in the way he does his work. Yeah. And like people come to rely on like seeing him there and having him interpret. And it's just a steadying experience of like, at least I've got Rupert Doubler. <laughs> that's great. And the fact that his name is Rupert Doubler, that's yeah. rhetorically onomatopoetically so satisfying. So the skill of what we can learn from listening to music and tolerating a lack of patterns is practice. It sounds like the skill, is, it's not just, what did you say it was? Practice and the doing of the thing, but also, yes, I think that you're oh, right. Yeah. It's, it's practicing, but keeping in mind context and intention and connection to meaning. Yeah, it's finding a way to include the uncomfortable experience in something larger. Like, yeah. what is the theme? What is the meaning? What is the intention? Where does this fit? Not in and of itself, because in and of itself, it it's, doesn't have a pattern, right. but it fits into a larger scale, something or other. Like the relationship between Andy, there is nothing healthy in my body, and Rupert Doubler. Those are mm -hmm. all three things that give people a sense of groundedness and connection to like a peace bringing entity. Yeah. So if we can find those things and find the things that fit into that pattern, that's going to help to stabilize us. It definitely helps my students tolerate music that they didn't like when the semester began. And I think At the end of the semester, they have better tolerance for it. I think that really is a powerful skill that they'll be able to apply to situations like this. How can I tolerate this truly intolerable situation? Yeah. I can put it in a larger context. I can notice my dislike in a not in a neutral way. Mm -hmm. I can think about what what kind of intention could be imposed on this. Like where is this coming from? What is the intention? And I can see if I can maybe it's just not for me and that's fine. And if I wait long enough, maybe I'll get more information that will build a enough exposure for it to feel comfortable enough for me to tolerate it. The way we tolerate TSA at the airport. 
Exactly. 20 years ago, nobody took off their shoes. We didn't, like, people could meet their loved ones at the, at the gate. gate. At the gate. Remember I have that? a photograph of a friend meeting his mom at the gate of the plane, and I could date it because they were meeting at the gate. Yeah. This must have been in August of 2001. Yeah. Because after that, no. Another layer to getting more comfortable and using this predictable brain pattern to understand where your feelings come from and kind of manage them by picking it apart is to understand that it's really easy to think or believe that your discomfort comes from the logistical day-to-day -day interruptions of your life. But when you look at how those disruptions really affect what's going on in your brain, you can tell that the discomfort comes from a much deeper place in your subconscious that your brain is trying, trying, trying to create a pattern to understand, to recognize, and it can't. And creating new connections and establishing new patterns is one of the most high intensity, most challenging things for your brain to do. Really exhausting. And understanding that it's not just about the mask. It's not just about staying home. It's not just about homeschooling your kids and the things that you're doing in your life. It's the fact that your brain is uncomfortable. Your brain is doing work that it doesn't usually have to do and that it doesn't really enjoy doing. And your brain hurts and you need to like, be, not make that laugh. Mm -hmm. And it's useful if you can remember that that's going on below the level of conscious awareness so that you can not react, for example, out of frustration and anger at something that's happening in your life when really where the frustration is coming from is your basal ganglia. Yeah. I wanted to add to that. On The Daily Show, uh, The Daily Social Distancing Show, mm. Trevor Noah interviewed uh, an astronaut who's like mm -hmm. just freshly home. Oh, right. Her name. What is her name? I know it's, I know it's in there somewhere in the brain. Come on. Christina Koch. Koch. Okay. Koch. Mm -hmm. Christina Koch. And so, you know, when you're in the space station for 11 months, you need some strategies for tolerating discomfort. Mm -hmm. And so what she, and so of course, Trevor asked about this. And uh, what she said was, you know, when you find yourself thinking, I wish I could just go get a latte. Mm -hmm. Like what you do is you remember that like, this is a once in a lifetime experience and you should like treasure the glorious things that are happening right now as a result of the inconvenience of not being able to go get a latte. Now we are not on the space station. No. Are we having a glorious experience? But there is something intensely powerful about living through this very slow, but enormous shift like paradigmatic shift yeah like this is intense hopefully once i think it's probably not once in most of our lifetimes but intense power it's once in the lifetime of anyone who's alive so far this is the first time most of us have experienced something like this yeah. and it's intense and unfamiliar and there's something really important in that like the first time you eat an unfamiliar food yeah. You might not like it, but yeah. like it is interesting. Yeah. Like the first time a person drinks alcohol. Yeah. Like you can impose all kinds of cultural narratives and scripts about how you're supposed to feel. But if you stop and really notice what that alcohol feels like in your body for the first time, part of you is going to be like, why do people like this? Yeah. Can I extrapolate a little bit from that in, yeah. to our situation? If, as President Obama would have wanted, we had been prepared with the whole system in place and we had known what the system was and we followed the system, mm -hmm. we would, none of us be feeling so off kilter. Oh yeah. The whole point of doing it well is people don't even notice how much didn't happen. Right. It's one of the shitty things about public health. Yeah. Yes. If you do your job right, people never know you had to do anything. Yeah. So, but if we had all felt prepared and seen a pattern being executed none of this would be as uncomfortable as it is. So you have the, that social preparing that you have for some of the first time they taste alcohol. Everyone around them is like, it's so amazing, you're gonna love it. So they taste it and it's terrible, but they're like, I'm supposed to like it. So they've had some kind of preparation and so they're ready for something kind of harsh. They're ready, they've been prepared for something that is right. an unpleasant-ish, but at least and there's they know plenty of research on this. We know for sure enjoyable that when people side are told that it's good, they will perceive it as good. We know that yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that could have happened here, and that didn't happen. Ugh. 
So which, which just makes it, sorry. To just conclude, it to summarize, we've got some skills here. Mm -hmm. Skill number one is noticing your discomfort in a neutral, non-judging way. Yes. Because it is normal to feel uncomfortable when you're exposed to something for the first time. Yes. Two, look for a larger intention in whatever it is that's giving you discomfort, which makes it more tolerable. Both of these things make it more tolerable. Mm -hmm. Three, if it is not for you, it is not for you. Feel free to turn off the radio, mm -hmm. either literally or figuratively. And I feel like there was a fourth thing. Oh, <laughs> think about the ways that this discomfort is actually a gift. Yeah. In the ways that like, if you sprain your ankle and it swells up real huge and it turns purple, and it's real uncomfortable. In the pain research, when they talk about how to help people um, heal from pain, you'd be like, look at that swelling. Look at you, you old self-healer, you. Look at your immune system doing its job. Right on, you're gonna get through this. Look at your body doing what it needs to do for you. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, it's Although a really thing. Another thing to, to help people understand and experience this as less negative is the fact that this is a learned skill. Your brain can adapt and get better. Like you can learn to listen to multiple parts of a fugue, like simultaneously as individual lines and as their relationship to each other. This is a thing that just requires your brain to burn some new pathways and develop some new habits um, and build some new patterns in it. And not only will you be able to tolerate it better, but just at a very fundamental level, your body will be less uncomfortable. Yeah with practice and with time, and especially if you're non-judgmental about it and kind of active about recognizing it. If people are intelligent enough about their consumption of information, they'll see the patterns beginning. Like I first saw the information about convalescent plasma and antibody testing in like the second or third week of March. And mm -hmm. I've been like watching that story the whole time. And it's now real. The first time I heard about convalescent plasma was the first time in my life I'd heard about a convalescent plasma intervention. And I've just been watching that story develop. And now it's a real source of like steadiness and inspiration for me whenever yeah. I see a new story about the ongoing tests of whether or not it actually is effective. So it's like a source of hope for me because I'm following a thread yeah. that has become familiar to me. Although even if you didn't have that source of hope, your brain would be getting better at tolerating the lack of hope because that's what brains do. They adapt. Yeah. That's a less optimistic conclusion to come to. But I I'm think trying it's trying to wrap us up. So Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, I think it's actually really optimistic to think like. Yeah, this... so do I, but we are weirdos. Remember yeah. that. Okay. We yeah. are freaks of nature. Sorry. I have conversations with my therapist about how like, yeah, no, I think hope is the bitch. I think hope is the problem. What I need yeah. to do is abandon hope. And she's like, I, I, for your sake, I don't want that to be true. And I was like, no, I feel good when I think that. When yeah. I let go of like hoping for something to be true, because I'm not hoping, I'm not for letting go of the fact that it's a possibility. I'm letting go of like the desperate clinging, there must be something else I can do to make this happen. What I'm really doing is letting go of control when I let go of hope. And I think most people do not tie their sense of being in control to their sense of hope. That's me being an over-functioning weirdo. Sure. So for me, my pessimism, I feel, helped me prepare for this. Oh, yeah. People were taken aback. I can't believe this is happening now. I'm like, you can't? You didn't just assume that the worst would happen? I assumed that the worst would happen. So I was like, yeah, of course we're going to be in lockdown for six months. 18 months. Yeah, totally. Uh huh? Yeah. I have, I have no expectation that there will be any relief from this, from this discomfort. And because I am confident that that is the nature of the universe, it doesn't take me by surprise. And I'm just yeah. like, yep. And you know what? This is the Feminist Survival Project, and we started making it many months before this happened. We made it because we knew 2020 would be a shit show. Mm -hmm. We did not know how very much of a shit show it would be how or how literal the survival would become. Would, yeah. Like, yeah. And so, like, I, I wasn't like, you know, what's going to happen is a global respiratory pandemic mm -hmm. is going to happen during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. But And when it began to happen, I was like, and yeah. it's happening during of the course. Trump administration. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. And oh my God, like it's yeah. going to be so much worse as a result. Yeah. And that was because I have not quite the same degree of pessimism as you. I was like, yeah, it's going to be bad. It's just like, we just know it's going to be terrible. 
Like as much as I would love for Trump to nail this and really do a bang up job. That would have been amazing. I didn't think that was gonna happen. No, no. Like I would love it, he would save lives. He'd be a hero, he'd be reelected. Yeah. But he'd save lives and I would take that. Yeah. But, but that's not how it works. Nope, it's not what happened. Yeah, so at least it's a familiar song. It's yeah. a song I hate, Yeah. but it's familiar. What's a song I hate that's familiar? Every rose has its thorn. Yeah, I even hate the meaning of that song. <laughs> Trump, the Guns N' Roses president. Some people, Some love people like him. Some people love Guns N' Roses. Yeah, and that's fine. That's fine. fine. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, how our brains work and how we tolerate discomfort are um, are learnable skills. We can we can make it work for us. Yeah. Neutral noticing. Search for a larger intention. Yeah. Be it's patient not just, to wait for the rest of the pattern. Recognize that it's not just the things that you're consciously aware of that make you uncomfortable, but there is activity going on below your level of conscious awareness inside your body that is literally physically discomforting, uncomfortable, and wait for your brain to catch up and to build the patterns that adapt to making you not so uncomfortable. And on that note, which mm-hmm. I think is sort of as optimistic as we're going to get, because sometimes things just suck. This is the Feminist Survival Project 2020. I'm Emily. I'm Amelia. And uh, thanks for listening. Beethoven's Fifth, Beethoven's Fifth, Beethoven's Fifth, Beethoven's Fifth, Beethoven's Fifth. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.